Hello and welcome to the Professional Practice Podcasts with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. And today we're chatting to Greg Lomas, Director of Award-Winning Architecture and Design Studio Foster Lomas Architects here in their offices in South London. We're looking at the issue of sustainability in architecture more broadly and in particular looking at recycling in design and in the construction industry. Greg used to run a series of workshops on recycled materials at Brighton University and obviously you could say that many lecturers recycle their material but I won't say that so we'll crack on. Thanks Greg for uh, giving up your time for this. Let's start before we actually get into the recycling conversation just tell us a bit about your early career, how you got into architecture. Um, Well architecture was kind of a big part of my family because my grandfather was an architect, my father studied architecture, even my brother studied architecture. It's in the blood, I guess. And I grew up in quite a sort of multidisciplinary family, so I had a, another grandfather who was an engineer and a wood turner and a potter, and another uncle and aunt who were artists, and another uncle who was a mechanical engineer. So Where was, the, where was this utopia that you grew up in? <laughs> uh, well, I, I was born in Sussex, in Crawley, and then my parents moved to Wales, into mid-Wales. And, uh... <laughs> uh, but yeah, you had a bit of a curious route to architecture, as I, as I see it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's partly born out of my um, my upbringing, you know, and just being exposed to lots of different crafts. But, I mean, in the early 90s, it was pretty difficult to get a job. So I and I was lucky enough to get a job with my old tutor, Mark May, and uh, he took me on for a couple of weeks and I stayed for three years. And that was really the start. I think also starting off in a recession, it just makes you a bit more entrepreneurial. So you want to kind of take advantage of all the opportunities that come your way. And that's why, you know, I ended up doing stuff for Habitat and various other bits and pieces. Yeah, don't, don't just throw and... that in, like, as if it's, like, <laughs> casual. Everyone does that. So you were a lighting designer, as I understand it, product designer? Well, in terms of lighting design, we did a lot of stuff at Spears & Major. I was there at a, a great time. You know, we did all the lighting for the Millennium Dome and worked on some really big projects. Stuff like Blue Water Park Shopping Centre, which maybe isn't so glamorous, but... It's quite interesting working on stuff of that scale. And then we did we did sort of one-off restaurants as well. And this is like getting blood out of a store, isn't it? How did you become a lighting designer? How did I become a lighting designer? Yeah. It's just an opportunity, I guess, and I took advantage of it. I mean, I think I always say to students when I'm either teaching or we're interviewing that if you have other skills that you can bring to a practice, then that's a massive advantage, you know. And it's sort of... There, there are plenty of people who come through the door who've done a degree and done a master's degree. But having that kind of other string to your bow, I think, is a real bonus, you know. Yeah, but I presume you didn't do this as a skill set CV exercise. No, no, it was an opportunity, you know, and I ended up working there for three years, and I I really enjoyed it. But I always knew that my real passion was being an architect, that's what I wanted to do, that's what I'd set out to do originally. Being a lighting designer gives you a new perspective on buildings, I suppose, and I got an opportunity to work with a lot of different practices and see how they operate, which Mm. was brilliant, you know. All right, then you had enough of that, and then you went and did your master's at London Met. Yeah. How did that work out? I mean, don't tell me the, the, the results, I don't want to know. No, 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 no. I don't want to see uh, significant, but... They weren't bad, um, but no, no, it was great. I mean, it, for me, I checked out a lot of the schools that were around, and I had an opportunity to choose which university I went to, because when I went and did my degree, I didn't have much choice, because I hadn't exactly done brilliantly in my A-levels, so... Um, I took it as an opportunity to go to the best school that I, I thought was around and um, that was London Met and had a great time and I met Will, my business partner at London Met while I was there. We did our part threes together with Gordon McLaren. It was a fantastic school at the time. 
So you say you met your business partner, but you didn't come out and form this company. You went into Flack. Yeah, I ended up working for Hal and Kim and Marcus Lee. And um, Will was setting up on his own in their office at the time. And we ended up working together on a couple of projects. And that's how the practice started. Um, and you got out before the Flack collapse. Well, we, we actually shared an office with them for a couple of years. And then it all went pear-shaped. Yeah, you can, listeners can read the press about that rather than us getting sued for uh, saying too much. So this idea of skill sets, you know, there's, there are you in wheels, stripped of the waist, carving, <laughs> and then you're doing all this other stuff with lighting. It's, you, can, you have this kind of variety in architecture. I don't mm-hmm. know whether I'm going to express it very well, kind of diverse experience idea which you've carried forward into your practice. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about collaboration and finding new ways of looking at problems. But I think also you can come up with some innovative ways of revisiting something that's been done before. And it is about creating something that's... I mean, craft is quite a, a key thing for us. Will trains as a blacksmith as well, so it's a big part of what we do. That's not a sentence you hear very often, is it? <laughs> no. Apart from the archers. No, that's true. Um, but, I, you know, I think appreciating good craft and what a craftsman can bring to a project is, is a really important part of our, our way of working. Yeah, because your website says you collaborate closely with a diverse group of people ranging from master craftsmen and fine artists to scientists. Do you want to tell us what you're trying to achieve by that? or well, What does it mean? We're kind of striving for innovation. I mean, I, I think with, with our projects, you know, we're, we're not looking for quick fixes. We're looking for something that has longevity and de- sort of desirability at the end of the day. I wouldn't necessarily say beauty, but that definitely the aesthetics of it come into, into play as well. We're not looking for something that's going to be a short-term solution. So what, the aesthetic side is second fiddle to longevity? I wouldn't say that. It's not always about beauty. Sometimes it's just about communicating the idea or the concept. Something can be beautifully made, but not necessarily beautiful in its in itself, if you see what I mean. Oh, are we, so are we talking about products rather than architecture? Because there is a functionality to architecture, I understand, but you kind of do want the building to look nice, don't you? Yeah, it's getting everything to kind of fit together, you know. So when, when we, you know, we've just finished a house on the Isle of Man and we designed a staircase and a library for that, which is all made out of steel. And it's a very raw aesthetic. It's not necessarily to everyone's taste, but it fits with the ethos of the whole building, you know. Yes, you don't really have a house style particularly, do you? No, not really. It's more of a, an, an approach. So our projects, we start off with a research base which takes a long time to kind of build up. And that's usually about the, uh, you know, the local context. It could be about the landscape, the architecture locally, the local materials, building techniques, that kind of thing. And then you gradually build up a picture of what might be appropriate to use in that location and then develop a concept based on the site analysis and the client brief, etc. All right, so we've done all... Well, we haven't done all that, but we've got a flavour of the, as to what you do and how you think about <clears> these things. So... There we are. Where, where is this now? Maybe over 10 years ago, you set up with Yeah, it's Will. 13 years now. 13 years. Man and boy. So you set up with Will, a limited company, both directors. Again, I have to ask you the question, since this is a professional practice podcast, as to whether that structure was well thought out. You know, with a limited company, you're going to protect any personal assets. So if it all goes wrong, you're not going to lose your house and the shirt on your back, So, which, which nobody wants, really. No. So it's always think of the worst case scenario. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. When you start off a business, you want to be thinking positively. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a very positive way to start, is it? So, But, you know, it's worked for us. It's like a prenup. 
Yeah, sort of. I mean, being in practice with someone for 13 years is a bit like being married. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In terms of management structures, I don't really want to bang on about this, but a couple of years ago, it was mm-hmm. well, well versed in the press about the Hindman Yard project in Dulwich, where the practice acted as architect, as client, and as developer. Yeah. So, again, in terms of management, how did you? What was the reasoning behind it, and how did you um, work it out in practice? Well, again, I mean, it was an, it was another opportunity. I mean, we we'd been moaning to a client developer of ours about making money as architects, uh, which is not an easy thing to do, and he. He said, well, I've got a site that we can take it forward and, and build it out and then sell what we produce. So, so we thought, well, this is a great opportunity. We didn't really know much about doing that at the time and felt like a, a good way to start to do it with somebody who'd done it previously. You know? So we were kind of partnering with uh, an experienced person who could kind of show us the ropes. And, I, you know, it was a very steep learning curve. You know, in hindsight, we'd probably do it in a, in a, in a different way next time around and have a main contractor because we ended up being management contractors basically and, and the problem with that is <laughs> the problem with that is you have to do the management <laughs> which it's is not easy the title track, yeah, yeah i know it's, it's not easy so you know just having the site manager every day you know uh, will was there every day just kind of trying to keep things moving and it sucked up enormous amounts of time and resources to to, to make it happen i think it didn't help that we we bought the site and we basically had to start almost immediately. We bought the site with planning already in place. So we ended up making tweaks to the design within uh, minor amendments, basically, so materials and window positions and things like that. And improving it, really, making a big improvement to the design. But because you've got to go from not having produced any drawings at all to starting on site the next day, it means you're always trying to catch up. So why why do you have to start the next day? Well, because of the financing. Oh, okay, right. Because we we borrowed an you know quite a lot of money to to kind of purchase the site and everything else. Okay. So so as soon as the sale went through, you have to start. But presumably, it's lucrative for the effort involved. In what sense, financially or? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Filthy lucre, lucrative. Yeah. It was it was lucrative until we had to sell the houses, and then actually you know. I think naively as architects, we thought, well, let's build some great houses and, you know, they'll sell like hotcakes. And uh, we now know that isn't the case, even though we had, you know, we had, ex- uh, we had a very good estate agent on board, uh, the modern house, who ended up selling three of the four houses and they got premium prices. But it was all about the timing, you know, because you've got the pressures of the finance that you've taken out, paying the interest and so on. The longer you take to sell the houses, the more of your profits get eaten up with interest. Sure. And we, we've spoken to other developer architects in the, you know, since then, and they've all said, well, you know, once you've built a house, it takes nine to ten months to sell it. And it took nine to ten months to sell them all. Okay. So is this an interesting learning curve for the next time you do it, or is this a depressing tale of you never doing this again? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing it again already. Okay. So I'm developing a house next door to my house, which is much smaller scale. And a bit more manageable, I think, in many respects, because it's more of a conversion. Than yeah, you're on the site. Well, I'm not, yeah, because I live next door, I yeah. can just kind of pop in and see what's happening. Very good. Again, I'm coming back to your company blurb, which says, we know how to talk to people to make them feel relaxed and confident in the project. And then you say, thanks to an openness and directness that is all too rare in architecture. I wondered what, what you meant, what by, meant that. by that. Apart from you're nice people, I get that. Well, I think uh, we've got a number of clients who've, ha- who've worked with architects in the past 
and not been particularly happy with the relationship they've enjoyed with them. And, you know, invariably, we, the feedback we get from those prior relationships is that, that, you know, there wasn't enough transparency or there wasn't enough clarity on what was actually going to happen and what they could expect as well. So, you know, I think a lot of it stems from that. And for us, you know, I, I think, especially with private clients, they're spending an, usually, you know, substantial sum of money, the mo- most money they've ever spent on anything in their lives. And they want it to be an enjoyable journey. They don't want it to be a painful process. And I think, you know, having a more inclusive approach to the design helps them feel like they're part of the decision-making process. And it's like they're engaged with the creative process. Because a lot of our clients aren't creative people. So for them, having an insight into the creation of a building is actually a really fruitful experience. So is this good business practice, or is this just because you're nice people and it's, um, uh, you, you, you don't think about it having a bottom line effect, or how do you map this in terms of internal management, or don't you care? It's just the way you are that you want to help people. Well, we, um, we're always tweaking the way that we structure our fee proposals. So I think increasingly now we actually specify the number of meetings and things like that. And we're, you know, we've done this in, enough to know how many meetings you might have, you know, how long it's going to take to de- deliver the planning package, for example, that kind of thing. Obviously, it depends on the client. I mean, we, we've got a very wide range of clients. We've got some clients who are very hands-off and they just want to come in for a meeting and you talk about the key issues and then they just leave everything else in your hands. And then we've got other clients who will come in with their own SketchUp models. It's a bit like meeting someone for the, for the first time and trying to work out what sort of person they are. And it's only when you've, you know, you've been with, out with them for a couple of beers you really get to understand what they're like. Right. But with a client, you're kind of having to make a judgment call right at the beginning and kind of second guess what yeah. might yeah. happen. Yeah. Well, and we, we have had clients who, you know, they come to us and they've been to court with other architects and things like this and the alarm bells do start ringing. The clues are there. Uh, look, we're supposed to be talking about recycling and I, and I distracted <laughs> you into a conversation about how you run your business. But it's very useful, I think. But, but in terms of the, because this kind of um, ethos, I suppose, that you have here, which comes across in what you've talked about, that then manifests itself in this conversation about environment, sustainability and recycling. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask, in the first instance, are there any projects that maybe you wouldn't countenance, any materials that you wouldn't use? Is there a, you know, do you have that level of ethical statement within your practice? I'd probably entertain most things if the client mm-hmm. understood that we would have our own take on that type of building you know, and we would bring our own way of thinking about it to the design and uh, you know I think if if a client's prepared to give you some creative latitude and you've got an opportunity to improve something o- over what what's normally done then I think it's a worthwhile process right. in, ter- in terms of materials I think again it goes back to the craft and longevity and desirability issues you know we do we do look at recycled materials for s- certain projects as well and, and in some respects I think like flooring, for example, it can be an advantageous thing to use. Uh, I think the problem is if you went down a route where you just produced a building that minimised waste and maximised recycling, you'd end up with quite a sort of engineered solution. And I think architecture is more of a balance between sort of its art and engineering, really, in a sense. So again, this idea of should we use recycled materials or should we not use recycled materials? I just wonder how you weigh those things up. 
I think it's about the efficiency of the materials you're using. That's a key part of it now. You know, the history of architecture is full of innovation uh, in terms of materials and engineering. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of efficiency comes in. And we've got an opportunity now, you know, new materials are being developed. You know, there's a big kind of, CLT is kind of the big thing at the moment, um, cross-laminated timber, uh, which we're looking at for some projects as well, which is something that's potentially very sustainable. And it's a very efficient way of producing a building, not just in terms of engineering, but in terms of time as well, time on site, that kind of thing, and wastage can be minimised with it. You could do off-site fabrication, these kinds of things. So I think the engineering and material efficiency and the development of new technologies, they all kind of go hand in hand. Um, and there are, you know, that's where the creativity of an architect can really come to the fore. The, the big problem at the moment is not necessarily... You know, we're, we're tackling the recycling issue. In some respects, it's taking what's happened in construction and to a wider society. In other aspects of our lives, we're living in a much more linear way, you know, where things are kind of very throwaway and you, you know, you buy, you buy a product that's got a shelf life of months, consume it in days, and then the packaging lasts for thousands of years. I mean, just this totally ridiculous situation. Basically, any construction project over £300,000 in England must have a site waste management plan, and it, you have to submit it at planning stage. And there is actually a BRE smart waste calculator tool that kind of determines the carbon accounting and the attributing costs and the sort of life cycle analysis, and then it spits out a series of different tables which describe the materials and their recyclability. I think that the key thing is how closely followed this is and how it's policed, really. Because it does seem at the moment it's one of those things that's incumbent on the contractor to kind of follow and manage. But I don't think anyone ever checks to see whether they do actually follow it. Do you find them useful as well? It's a useful way of identifying what waste products you're going to end up with on site and how, you know, then you can start thinking about how you might reuse them, if at all possible. Uh, and this one's actually for a listed building. But is that how you have used it? So you've done the report... It flags up, you know, some red bar charts on the graph and says, you know, this is a bit of a dodgy one. Have you then reassessed? Not as yet. I mean, normally, because it's the management of the contract, it's the, it's the contractor's management sort of side of things. So they manage the, the site waste. But if there was something that we wanted to reuse, we would flag it in the specification and then reuse it. So if, if for example, there's a lot of waste concrete that's getting broken up and we want to reuse it in a slab or in foundations, and that's suitable material, we would put that in the specification. So when you do the strip-out spec or the demolition spec, you would actually write in which materials you want to reuse and retain. With buildings and recycling, I, most of the general public don't think about it, but we've made great strides in, uh, in recycling materials on site. I mean, you've given me a wonderful environmental diatribe about you know how we're destroying the planet and then then the onus now must come on you to, to in some way show me how some you are doing something uh, yeah. good yeah absolutely um, I think it happens in a number of ways you know, a few years ago we invested in a bar in North London with a, with a couple of other architects uh, and it wasn't a great success as a business but the attitude that was taken was that basically we would take everything out it, it, Ironically, it used to be Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was a series of rooms, like offices, basically. So all the materials that were taken out of it and stripped out were then used to create the, the bar. So 
to create the bar itself, the cladding on the walls, everything. And I think, you know, that was quite an interesting exercise in taking what you would, you know, normally you'd walk into that space and you would think, this is completely, you know, useless. Let's strip everything out and we'll re-plasterboard it all and make it all nice and white. And, and, and we didn't, you know, and it was this big kind of collage of different materials and colours and things. Um, and it was like a reinvention of what was there before. And I think, you know, it was a way of doing it very cheaply. And that, I, mean, I think there's some great examples of that kind of thing where there's a lot of spaces where you end up with pop-up bars and shops that are taken over on a short lease, you know. Yeah. Something else is created very cheaply and quickly, which is a great resource for the local community. So I, I think, you know, that was a good experience for us. I mean, we've just been talking about the house in Cornwall. Give it a brief synopsis of what it is. Well, the, the house is uh, located on a coastal site, and it's uh, it's in a, a kind of area of outstanding natural beauty, and it's it's got a, a beach below it and a couple of footpaths near it as well. So it's in this very prominent position. It's a very ugly house. That's, um, the, that's the existing one that you're replacing. Yes, not our house. Um, and we're going to be replacing it with a new building that has a lower impact on the landscape because it, it's... The existing house is considered to be a local eyesore. So we've been exploring ways in which we could recycle the materials. Some of them might be bits of timber. It could be reused in the building if it's uh, we've got the kind of brick masonry walls, um, and the and the roof could be ground up to create a slab for the new house. That kind of thing. So ways in which we can kind of repurpose all the materials on the house. You know, and it, it may not be everything, but um, would that cost more money to do it, or would you save money by doing that? I think it probably isn't going to, it's probably going to be cost neutral I would imagine. Part of the problem with that particular site is it's quite remote so we're trying to not bring a, you know too much material to site yeah. if we can help it. Yeah. You know, and just and sourcing things locally I think. You know when you think about the carbon footprint of a of a building you know the house on the Isle of Man that we've just finished all the stone for the facades has come out of the ground when we dug the hole for the basement and that's all been kind of reused to create the house itself so yeah, you know, I think you know, working locally can work really well. No, I'll get it where you can. Yeah. Isn't it? Following on from that one, you're, the example we talked about before about Heinemann's Yard, because that was you working at design stage, construction stage, and then in some, yeah. ways, in some ways maintenance use stage. And this idea of sustainability kind of covers all of those phases. I mean, like you say, it's more than just the building of the building. It's about yeah. how you use the building and, and, and what have you. So again, did you think about this process all the way through as to... Uh, well, with that, it was. I mean, I, I think when you're when you're the developer and you're stumping up the money to kind of build the building, the waste is profit going out the door, basically. So you want to try and do it as efficiently as possible. And with that particular project, we ended up doing an off-site construction. So we did uh, a timber frame construction building, which was fabricated in Latvia, and then it was brought over and then assembled on site. So the whole thing was a kit of parts. So there's no cutting or kind of loss of material on site. It's all done in a factory, and then it's any any wastage in the factory is then kind of recycled and reused or you know turned into something else. And then the bricklayer kind of clad them all in brick, basically. Um, and again, you know, we designed all the brick modules to kind of work with the building, so you're kind of reducing the amount of wastage. Uh, so, but in terms of that idea of you know building something sustainably in timber in uh, mm -hmm. factory conditions and hyper-efficient over here while transporting it from Latvia. I'm sure there might be some environmentalists having a coronary as we speak about the... True, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the economics of it come in as well. And, you know, 
the fact of the matter was that we couldn't find someone in the UK who could build it as efficiently and cheaply as they could in Latvia. And, you know, Latvia is, what a lot of people don't realise is it's the kind of capital of plywood in the world. You know, they produce the best quality plywood available, yeah. There you go. The podcast <laughs> is worth it just for that. Well, I was just reading, actually, I just thought I'd mention this. The recovery rate for non-hazardous waste in construction and demolition is actually over 90%. That was just, like I said, a couple of years ago. So the question then would be, is this such a big problem? You know that we can take up such a huge conversation in the architectural press, mm-hmm. in the construction industry, in government about these issues. Is it kind of an inordinate amount of energy being spent on saving um, well, I think the focus is going to change a little bit. I think it's a question of whether you can actually reduce the 90% as a proportion of the waste, if you see what I mean. So that there, there is just less waste. That, that would be, uh, you know, I think, the focus. That's really where the, the material efficiency comes in, I think, in terms of you know, whether you can build a building more efficiently with less materials. I think there's always room for improvement. I mean, I, I guess I would be thinking about what is a, what's the 10% that actually has to go to landfill and can we find ways of replacing those materials with something that actually doesn't need to go to landfill. But, I, you know, it's, it, it proves that we're doing things quite efficiently already. We're trying to produce buildings which are going to be cherished by the people that own them. So I, I guess, you know, one of the things we don't think about is what happens when someone takes it apart and how they kind of recycle it. But I think if you're, if you're talking about commercial buildings and you go to places in a, a, other parts of the world or even in the city of London, you know, where you, you, know, you build a skyscraper and then 20 years it gets pulled down and someone builds something else. In some respects, you're trying to predict the future of what's going to happen to that building. And you're assuming that the materials that are in it are going to be worth something and it's going to be worth kind of taking it apart carefully so that you can kind of recycle or reuse it. So last question, which is... Um a particular book that you swear by, or something that's influenced your ambitions, your direction, something that you would recommend to the listeners? Well, I, I think the, the book I'd recommend is Cradle to Cradle, which is all about, and it's called Remaking the Way We, the way we Make Things. By Bill McDonough. And I think it's quite, you know, just going back to what you were asking about the circular economy, I mean, that's a really good example of, there's some great examples in that book of how to kind of rethink the way that we do things. And actually how to rethink the way we do things and still run a business. Good point to finish. Uh, many thanks to Greg Lomas of Foster Lomas, www.fosterlomas.com. My name is Austin Williams. Please subscribe. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again on the next Professional Practice Podcast.